Uh, can I add my word of welcome uh, to that of Martin just now? Uh, it's lovely to have you with us tonight. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, could you please turn with me to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3? 1 Timothy chapter 3 on page 1183, page 1183 of the Church Bibles. And if you look in your bulletin, the white bulletin, uh, on the center pages, uh, you will see an outline of uh, uh, the sermon today, uh, together with some of the cross-references. So it would be helpful to have that open in front of you as well. So page 1183, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, and the outline that's in the center of the bulletin. Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that um, you speak to us by your Spirit through your Word, that you've been speaking to us as your Word has been read and been sung uh, tonight, and we pray that you continue to do that now as we consider this passage together. Uh, may your Holy Spirit, uh, who gave us this passage, uh, help me to, to preach it rightly and in his power, and may he work in each one of our hearts that we might respond rightly. Uh, and love and serve the Lord Jesus. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> Jesus Christ is the head of his church. He is our leader. He is the king who died for us on the cross to take the penalty of sin on our behalf. He is the one who bought us with his own blood to make us his people. He rules us as our risen king by his spirit through his word. And he is the perfect leader who never sins, never fails. He loves us, prays for us, guides us, and keeps us. And one day he will take us to be with him where we will enjoy eternity under his blessing and rule. Jesus Christ is our leader. But in our passage today, he has told us by his spirit through his spokesman, the Apostle Paul, that we are also to have other leaders, human leaders who will lead his church. Shepherds, if you like, who are responsible to the chief shepherd. And he's given us the criteria for what kind of people he wants them to be. You may recall from chapter 1 that the Apostle Paul urged Timothy to stay in Ephesus, to charge those who are teaching false doctrine to, to stop doing that. That's the defensive or the negative side. On the positive side here, he's telling Timothy what kind of leaders the church really ought to have. Why is he telling him this? Well, if we read Paul's letter to Titus, we see him telling Titus to appoint leaders in Crete and then gives them similar criteria as he gives Timothy here. So probably he's telling him this to so that he knows what kind of people to appoint as the leaders in his church. There are two kinds of leaders mentioned in the passage. The first are the overseers in verses 1 to 7, and the second, the deacons or servants in verses 8 to 13. And we're going to look at each of them in turn in a moment. But before we do that, we need to realize that the terminology we use today is different from the way the New Testament puts it. That's not a problem, as long as we understand it. 
Uh, in the churches described in 1, and 1 Timothy and Titus, uh, the main leaders are called overseers. Now, the Greek word is episkopoi, from which we get episcopal, and so the King James Version translates the word bishops. This same group of people were also known as elders. Uh, the Greek word there is presbyteros, and so you can translate it presbyters. And so the fact that the overseers and the elders or the presbyters were actually the same group of people, well, we can see that from, from Titus 1, verse 5 to 7. Uh, if you look in your handouts, you see Titus 1, and Paul says to Titus, I left you in Crete so that you may, at the end of verse 5, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. In verse 6, he talks about the kind of people who are to be elders, and he says in verse 7, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He's using the terms interchangeably. Or if you go to Acts 20, also on your handouts, you see that Paul uh, called for the elders of the Ephesian church to come to him in verse 17. And what does he say to them in verse 28? Pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. See, so overseers and elders, they're used interchangeably for the leaders of the congregation. And we can work out from these and other passages that they, they took responsibility for the church. They led God's people primarily through teaching God's word, and there were usually a number of them in each congregation. Now, these elders or these presbyters, uh, we've taken the word presbyter uh, and we've shortened it to priest. Now, that's, that's fine, though it's a little bit confusing because when we say priest, we mean something different from the word priest that's in the Bible. In the Bible, uh, the priests, you're talking about, well, the Old Testament priests, you're talking about Jesus as the great high priest, you're talking about us as the priesthood of all believers. That's a completely different word than the word presbyter or elder. And when we talk about priests, we're talking about presbyters, we're talking about elders. Uh, and so when you see the word elder in the Bible, think presbyter, pastor, priest, that kind of person. Over time, as churches were planted, the senior presbyter from each mother church was the team leader for all the presbyters of the daughter churches. And so the word overseer or episkopos or bishop, instead of being used for all the elders, began to be reserved for the leading elder, the senior presbyter. And so the system evolved of an overseer or bishop as a leader of a team of presbyters or priests who led churches around a particular area. And that is a system we are now familiar with, uh, with a bishop, who for us is the leader of a number of presbyters or priests in an area called a diocese. Seems to me to be a good system that needed to evolve as the churches grew and multiplied. But here in 1 Timothy, this was early days, the system was not yet developed, and so the priests or presbyters or the elders or the bishops and overseers, they're, they're still the same people. Later on, when we come to the word deacon, uh, we will see it's changed as well. The word deacon simply means servant. Uh, the way we operate now, a deacon is like a probationary presbyter. Now, tomorrow, Stephen Raj is being ordained as a deacon. If he behaves himself well and fulfills his ministry, he can reasonably expect that about this time next year, he'll be ordained as a presbyter or a priest. That's not quite what, that's not quite what, the, what the New Testament uses the word deacon for. Not quite sure what deacons did back then, 
some people think they served in all kinds of serving kind of ways, except that the preaching and teaching and ruling job, which was the job of the overseer, but we're not actually sure exactly what. Now, why do I tell you all this? It's simply because that when we read 1 Timothy 3 or any other passage, we can't simply read backwards from what we read there into, into now. Uh, we simply can't read backwards from now into what we read there. We can't just simply say, oh, verse 1 to 7 is bishops and verse 8 to 13 is deacons like, like we have today. No, it's not. On the other hand, we don't need to worry too much about the names because even in the New Testament, there are different names for the same group of people. And even in the New Testament, not every church seemed to have the, this particular structure at the time. And what Paul does speak to the Ephesian elders in Acts, but when he writes to the Galatians and the Colossians and even the Romans, he doesn't address the elders and deacons in the same way as you'd expect as if they've already got this structure like in 1 Timothy. And furthermore, we're not given enough details here to create a, a proper system of church government. We'll still have to guess various things. So what's important is not that much the names that are here, or trying to create a system that mimics what we see here, but the principles here that are found that we want to apply for the life of God's people. And to be careful not to do anything that will contradict these principles in our churches. So, having said that, let's have a look at how Paul tells Timothy to choose overseers. Remember that the, the closest parallel in our situation is probably our clergy. Chapter 3, verse 1. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. He desires a noble task. It's not wrong to want to be an overseer. Right? If you aspire to the office of overseer, that's, that's a good thing. Come and talk to me afterwards. Love to talk to you about it. It's a very responsible work. And we have to be very careful when choosing overseers. Uh, Paul says on another occasion, do not be hasty with the laying on of hands. It's a noble task. You need the right person for it. An overseer must be, in verse 2, above reproach. That doesn't mean he's perfect. If that was the case, then there wouldn't be any other leaders except Jesus, wouldn't there? Um, but an overseer must be someone who is not, not open to attack or criticism based on his actions. He must be a, someone who is squeaky clean, that, that, that mud can't stick to him, known to be of good character. And how does this express itself? Well, Paul goes on with a whole number of things. He must be, in verse 2, the husband of one wife, literally a man of one woman. So anything else is out. Adultery, divorce and remarriage, polygamy, keeping a mistress, same-sex marriage, all those things would, would disqualify someone from, from being an overseer. The overseer must model Christian virtue in, in sex and marriage, a husband of but one wife. And then in verse 2, he must be sober-minded and self-controlled. He must be someone who's clear-headed and rational and prudent and thoughtful. He can't be someone who's in the habit of getting emotionally carried away and losing his cool. He is, verse 2 again, to be respectable, someone who acts in a way that's honorable, someone who people can esteem. He must be still, in verse 2, hospitable, willing to care for strangers for the sake of the gospel. At the end of verse 2, he must be someone who is able to teach. He must be, on the one hand, faithful. I must understand God's Word, be faithful in explaining it. And he must be able to communicate God's truth to others. 
But it's not just understanding and faithfulness and skill and communication that this able to teach is about. The other time it appears in the Bible is, is 2 Timothy 2.24, where it means actually being able to teach in a loving way as opposed to being quarrelsome or resentful. So even being able to teach is, yes, it's about knowledge, yes, it's about faithfulness, yes, it's about skill, but it's, it's also about godliness. Verse 3 tells us four things that an overseer cannot be. He cannot be a drunkard. It doesn't mean he can't drink at all, but he, he cannot be someone who habitually gets drunk with alcohol. He cannot be, verse 3 again, violent. He can't be an aggressive man. He can't be the kind of leader who bullies or intimidates people into doing what he wants. He can't be one of those people who appear all holy at church and, and beat their wives at home. Not violent, Paul said gentle. And he can't be, at the end of verse 3, a lover of money, someone who's greedy, who will steal or lie or, or compromise the leadership for the sake of monetary gain. And he must be proven in these areas before he's given charge of a congregation. So you've got to look at the products of the other ministry he's been involved in before giving him this responsibility. And in particular, look at his family ministry. Look at his children because the church is a big family and you look at what kind of leader he's going to be by looking to see how he's leading at home. Verse 4, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Next, an overseer must be a mature Christian. In verse 6, he must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. For his own sake, you cannot take someone who's just become a Christian, who's just repented, his life's completely changed, wonderful thing, right? Don't hold things, be, don't hold things against people from, from before they became a Christian, will you? Right? But they're a new creation when they come to Christ, but you can't just become a Christian and be thrust into leadership. They need to be spiritually mature enough to, to exemplify the virtues listed here and yet realize how sinful and how weak they are and how much they need to depend on the grace of God. Otherwise, they might end up thinking there's something pretty great about themselves and end up all bloated with pride and forget their lowly place before God like the devil and then face the same condemnation. And finally, in verse 7, the overseer must be well thought of by outsiders. It must be someone with a good reputation outside. It doesn't mean he has to be popular with non-Christians. It doesn't mean they have to agree with him, but it means they can never look at him and go, ah, oh, scandal, scandal, scandal. Verse 7 continues, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Because if the church is meant to glorify God, the devil will always try to bring its leaders down. He will try to trap us and disgrace us and make non-Christians think bad about us so they will not hear our message and we must not have leaders whose behavior makes this possible. Now, as we look at the characteristics of these overseers that, that Paul describes, what is to notice one big thing. The big criteria here is not gifts, but godliness, isn't it? Yes, there's a criteria of being able to teach that has a combination of those two things. And yes, there's a criteria of not being a recent convert, and that's just a matter of time. But all the other criteria are criteria of godliness. And friends, that's a very, very important principle when it comes to church leadership. 
Paul doesn't say choose the people with the best leadership skills or the best rhetorical skills or the best management skills. Yes, they'll need some maturity. Yes, they'll need to be able to teach. But the most important thing is godliness. And that's the same thing when it goes on to talk about the next group of leaders who are called deacons or servants. Uh, we see in verse 8 that they must be dignified. That is, they must be honorable, serious, respectable. They're not to be double-tongued or insincere. They can't be addicted to much wine. They can't be alcoholics. They can't be greedy for dishonest gain. Kind of leaders who cheat or steal. It's just not on. They must hold the mystery of the faith in verse, in, um, in verse 9 with a clear conscience. They must be truly believe the gospel and live lives that are consistent with it. And they must know in their own conscience that that's the case. But it's not just their conscience on the inside that tells them that. People on the outside can see that as well. And, and that takes time. That takes inquiry. Uh, in verse 10, it says that let them also be tested or examined first. And let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Again, not perfect, but blameless. Cannot have mud sticking. And just like with the overseers, the, the family is important. Their wives, in verse 11, must be dignified, serious, honorable, respectable, like the husbands are meant to be. They, can, they can't be slanderous. People will carry stories around about other people that are not true. They must be sober-minded, whose, whose minds are clear, not, not, not clouded uh, by drugs. They must be faithful in all things because their responsibility in the church is weighty. And wives of church leaders are influential. And so the character of the wives is, is influential as well. And as we think about the deacons and their wives, we're again told to consider their family life. Uh, in verse 12, let deacons be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their household well. And the reason for that is in verse 13. Uh, in verse 13, when you look at verse 13, you do realize that the word deacon means servant. And so where our translation has got those who serve well as deacons, it's actually just serve well or deacon well. Now, if you read that together with verse 12, you see that deacons should first manage their own household well for those who serve well, that is referring to the service at home, gain a good standing for themselves. If you're a good servant leader at home, you gain a good standing for yourself. Your good servant leadership is recognized for what it is. Therefore, you're in a position perhaps to serve at church. So when we're thinking about appointing a potential pastor, probably we should actually interview his wife and say, what does he really like at home? Does he serve well? Uh, furthermore, in verse 13 continues that a servant or a deacon who serves well at home also gains great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus as they do home ministry, as they lead their family in loving God and teaching their children to trust in him, they themselves grow in confidence in the faith and are better prepared to lead God's church. Again, what do you notice about the qualification for deacons? Once again, the key thing is godliness. Gospel faith lived out in actions. Once again, tested first before being made leaders in the church. And why is all this so important? Well, verse 14, Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, 
a pillar and buttress of the truth. That seems to be the purpose statement, not only of this section, but of the whole letter. Why is 1 Timothy written? So that Timothy and the church that he's leading, and indeed we ourselves may know how to behave in God's household. And one of the important things about how to behave in God's household is what kind of leaders we should have, isn't it? Now, the word that is rightly translated here, household, can also be translated house. Same word. We are the household of God. We are the house of God. Because when the Holy Spirit speaks about God's house or God's household, he's not, he's not talking about the building, right? When we say this is the house of God, we're not saying the cathedral building. God, God doesn't live, you know, down the front of the cathedral or something like that. Right? The house of God, the household of God, the, the family of God is the gathering of God's people. We are the household of God. We are God's family. We are the church. And verse 15 says that this household of God, this church, is, the, is, a, is a pillar and buttress of truth. A pillar and a buttress, they, they hold the building up, isn't it? And together what we are doing is we are holding up the gospel. We're holding up to make it clear for people to see. And if our job is to do that, we need to be the kind of community that exemplifies and lives out the implications of this gospel that we're holding up and holding out. And we need to have godly leaders who will lead us by word and example in this way and whose lives will not bring disgrace to the name of Christ. And as we look at the characteristics of these leaders, actually, not really much different from what God expects of all of us, isn't it? Now, it's not just leaders who are meant to be honest. It's not just leaders who are meant to be sexually moral. It's not just leaders who are meant to be self-controlled. It's not just leaders who are meant to be sober. It's not just leaders who are meant to serve their families. What it's talking about here is simply living a Christian life that, that all of us are meant to be living. Leaders are not like super spiritual Christians on a higher plane than everyone else in a different kind of category. They're just meant to be exemplifying the godly, simple spirituality that God wants all of us to have. The kind of character traits that Paul is giving here for overseers and deacons are characteristics of godly living. It's proper for all God's people. Once again, the two little exceptions, well, two exceptions, being able to teach and not being new Christian for the overseers. Apart from that, we all live like this. And so if you're not a leader, don't just read this and go, oh, okay, this doesn't really apply to me. No, 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 no. It's not saying that people who are not leaders are, not, are exempt from this. It's saying you cannot appoint leaders to lead everyone to do this if they themselves are not doing it. Now, godliness is for everyone not just leaders, but do pray for the leaders that they will indeed exemplify uh, these things. You see, the main point of the passage, the main thing that we're to take home from this tonight is that the most important criteria for leadership in church is godliness, not giftedness. The most important criteria is godliness, not giftedness. Character above ability. Friends, the fact that someone has a Bachelor of Theology or a Master's of Divinity does not qualify him to be a leader in God's church. 
Now, of course, it's important to have leaders who are well-trained in the Word. It's even more important to have leaders who are godly, isn't it? Uh, if, if I steal money from the church or if I'm unfaithful to my wife or if I become a bully or a violent man, then, then I shouldn't play the role of an overseer. If I repent, then forgive me and rehabilitate me as a brother, but I can't just continue on as if nothing's happened. Later on in 1 Timothy, we'll see what, how to deal with, with, uh, uh, with uh, elders who, 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 uh, who persist in sin. But here it's talking about when you're choosing the elders, and we need to be very careful when doing so. So brothers and sisters, let's remember this. Church leaders must be godly. That's the basic requirement. Yes, we must look for abilities and the gifts. Yes, we look for training. Yes, we look for track record. Leaders need all those things. But the fundamental thing must be in place first before we even consider these other matters. Christ is the head of his church. And so the first and most important thing when looking for church leaders is they trust him, obey him, and show his character in their lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the leaders that you have given us in our church and in churches across our country. Please give wisdom to them and to all who are involved in the process of encouraging and selecting and grooming and, and appointing them. May we always have godly leaders who lead us in godliness. We especially thank you for our ultimate leader, for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he is the perfect leader who perfectly shows your, your character to us. May we and all our leaders always love him, serve him, and submit ourselves to him. And we ask these things in his name. Amen.